Hello everyone and welcome to our PrepCast. This podcast is dedicated to MBA and master's orientation and preparation. My name is Martina and in today's episode we are going to talk about the top 10 GMAT myths and we will give you the best advice and how to deal with them. I'm here today with a special guest, Stefan, who is a tutor in my guru team. My guru is a Chicago-based education company. They are providing one-to-one tutoring, test preparation, uh, and they based in Chicago, New York, Boston, and M- Minneapolis. Stefan, it is a pleasure having you here today. I have introduced you very shortly. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and your experience. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. So I have been teaching uh, test prep, including the GMAT, for nearly two decades now. And I've taught folks who have gone on to universities uh, across the globe in Asia, uh, UK, Europe, North America, uh, Australia. I don't know if South America is on the list yet, but I've helped people go to a bunch of different programs. And I like to say that I help people do more with their degree than I do mine. I've got an undergraduate degree from the University of Southern California in communications and a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern University. And I have not worked in the media for nearly 15 years. So I'm Hopeful that anybody who's listening to this will do more with their business degree than I do with my journalism degree. And that's ultimately why I do this, because it's a pleasure to help folks attain their academic dreams by getting past this part of the admissions puzzle, the GMAT. Great. Uh, Thank you so much for accepting our invitation today. And maybe let's start with first and maybe most believed myth for every test that uh, students believe that it's true, uh, it's possible to cram. (laughs) Yeah, the GMAT is definitely more of a skills-based endeavor than an academic endeavor. And what I mean by that is it's like, say, preparing for a marathon or preparing for an art competition or a musical performance. You have to prepare regularly and not just assume that if I try to play my trumpet for eight hours that I suddenly am going to be a professional at it. You've got to do regular practice so that in the moment you're able to execute on the skills that you've cultivated over time. So it's not a situation where you can just memorize a bunch of uh, facts or memorize grammar rules, for instance, or memorize the formulas for a bunch of random geometric shapes. You have to know how to recognize what the exam is testing and then apply your knowledge in a new fashion, which means that it is absolutely impossible to cram. If anything, doing too much practice in a single sitting can actually be detrimental. You really want to avoid trying to overtax yourself. And I've certainly had people who have said things to me like, I want to do GMAT prep over the next two weeks, and I'm ready to dedicate 50 hours per week to do that and expect to excel. And it's really just not a path for success when it comes to this exam. You've got to do practice drills, not just do practice exams over and over and over again. You have to make sure that 
you are building your skills over time and an hour or two of targeted practice and review is really going to be the best way to over time and that means probably for two to four months for most people build those skills so that when you're ready to actually take the exam you're capable of responding to whatever question you see in front of you knowing that it's ultimately going to be something new Great, I uh, understand. And um, the second myth that uh, comes to my mind, and uh, a lot of uh, prospective students actually uh, believe it, um, obscure grammar is necessary. Could you please? So, especially from a non-native English perspective, right? The thing that I hear all the time is, I need to memorize idiom. And Idiom, as uh, somebody who is a native English speaker, I understand that the idiomatic pieces of English are often the things that people find most frustrating. For instance, if you're a native English speaker, it's probably relatively easy to say, well, I differentiate one thing from another, not one thing to another. But again, as somebody who has a degree literally in an, in an editing capacity, and that's what journalism uh, teaches in a large part, I can't really tell you why it's differentiate from versus differentiate to. You just know it because that's the way the preposition works. And the reason is just, it's the reason. <laughs> Similarly, the plural of deer, the animal in English is deer. It's not deers. Why? Some dead white guy decided that years and years ago in England. It has nothing to do with today. That's just the way it works. And you're not going to benefit from just memorizing all of the um, irregular plurals, all the irregular verbs, all the weird verb tenses that English has, because you're probably wasting your time. And that verb tense that you studied may not even show up on the exam. Instead, you want to focus on the meaning of the sentence. And you don't even have to worry about things like punctuation. Punctuation isn't actually tested by the exam as a standalone issue. Punctuation is only tested in conjunction with issues of meaning. So for instance, IT apostrophe S is the contraction it is. ITS its is the possessive. So those have two different meanings. So if I say it's without the apostrophe, that means that it's like the dog's bone. The dog, its bone means that the bone belongs to the dog. But if I say it's happening, IT apostrophe S, that means it is happening and that definitely is not a possessive. So you have to focus on these issues of meaning and not just try to memorize grammar. And one of the things that the exam tries to take advantage of from a sentence correction perspective in particular is you being too technically focused and losing sight of the bigger picture. So you have to make sure that you're not ignoring the intended meaning in trying to do what I like to call grammar auto matching. Just because there's a past tense verb in the sentence previously does not mean that the next verb in English has to be past tense. If I say in the future, well, that's something that will happen. Even if previously I said in the, past, in the past, this did happen, and that's the past tense, and then if I changed the rest of the sentence to say in the future, this will happen, that by meaning makes sense, but it doesn't match grammatically. So you have to make sure that you don't overemphasize the obscure grammar. Focus on some of the basics of English grammar, subject verb agreement, verb tenses, pronouns, those sorts of things that are 
absolutely objective, but don't get lost in the weeds of things like, do I need to use a semicolon? Do I need to use a long dash? Do I need to use a colon? Should I use a comma? Those sorts of issues are actually um, false flags to a degree within the exam. They're trying to get you to focus on issues that are ultimately secondary, not being tested in, in um, replacement of issues that are actually being tested that affect the intent and meaning of the sentence, which is ultimately what is being tested by the exam, is your ability to understand a sentence, understand what it's trying to say, and articulate how it should or should have said it in the answer choices. Great, thank you for making this clear. And another uh, myth that uh, I would like to uh, discuss today, uh, that um, a lot of um, applicants think that technical math is always best. Could you please uh, give some direct points about um, this myth? Absolutely. We covered at the beginning, I have degrees in journalism and communications. I am not a math student. I haven't taken a math course in, ooh, we don't want to date me exactly, but we'll say at least, I want to say close to two decades at this point. But the math itself is just a language for logic when it comes to this test. And the exam makers understand that there are folks, and I've instructed people who have degrees, things like math degrees from the University of Chicago or economics degrees from the uh, London School of Economics, and they have easily a more academically strong background in math than I do. But there are always going to be questions on this exam that I like to call engineer breakers. And engineer breakers are questions where there's just really difficult algebra really underpinning it or really difficult geometry or really complex translations of the English to the math. And they are such that you can do it, but it's going to take you five to seven minutes reasonably if you try to do it algebraically. Then you've seen questions like this, things that suddenly it looks like you need to do a fourth degree quadratic factorization, use the quadratic equation, and you're like, that seems just unreasonably time consuming for this exam where there's an average of two minutes per minutes per question. And that's absolutely true. Instead, you just need to think about it logically. And you might be able to look at your answer choices and see some sort of crazy uh, arithmetic expression and go, Logically, well, because this is structured in such a way, and they said that they have to be integers, I know that x has to be a multiple of six, and it's got to be negative. And the only answer choice that uh, satisfies those two conditions is negative 12. You go, okay, it's negative 12, and I don't have to fully calculate. Similarly, I have plenty of folks with, again, a strong math background who will tell me I don't want to back solve, I don't want to uh, model anything because I know that I can solve it algebraically. This exam is putatively one that tests your ability as a manager and managers have to be flexible in approach. That's honestly what they are really testing in a lot of different facets through this exam. So they don't want you to say, I always do it algebraically, or I always do it logical estimation, or I always do it through modeling or back solving or any of the other tactics that are out there. They want you to respond to the problem with the most efficient path to solving that you see in the moment. So if you say that technical math is always best, you're not being flexible and you will run into questions where you're suddenly sitting there going, wait a minute, why am I suddenly trying to do the square root of XY over 48 divided by seven and going, this looks horrible and it's taking me forever. 
when you if you just looked at the answer choices, you might say, well, if I just plug this in, I'll be able to figure out what the correct answer is in 30 seconds flat. So technical math will certainly something you need a baseline understanding of many of the arithmetic and algebraic concepts, exponents, fractions, decimals, mental math is certainly required. You don't want to overemphasize it and say it's always the best approach. In fact, there's no best approach. The flexibility is really key. I understand. Thank you so much. And talking um, here um, about, let's talk here about the ISE integrated reasoning and that uh, a lot of people think that they can ignore them and skip this section. So what do you think about this? So the essay and the integrated reasoning are definitely secondary for most GMAT uh, application usages. So certainly leave them until later. But there are two reasons you don't want to ignore them. First, you're going to have to execute on them on test day. So your practice exams, you should do the full exam in order to get a realistic gauge of what your score is. If you're leaving off an hour of the exam, whether it's at the beginning or the end, you're not getting an accurate accounting of what your performance level is. So you definitely need to incorporate those in your practice exams as much as possible. Secondly, people do look at the scores at least briskly. Obviously, they don't go into the 800 overall score, but anecdotally, for the integrated reasoning section, I as an instructor have had individuals come back with 700 plus scores requiring a seven on the integrated reasoning. So they had to retake the exam simply for an integrated reasoning score. And this so far has proven more frequent of an occurrence in the uh, European and Asian um, business school community, for whatever reason, not so much North America, but uh, I believe it was in Sayad, and I want to say it was either London Business School or the School of Economics, I can't remember which, that I've had students say, I need to get a seven. And the way that you want to consider your IR score in conjunction with your overall score is whatever the first digit is of your overall score should be your IR score digit. So if you're getting a 550 and that's sufficient for you, a five on the IR is probably a good idea. If you're getting a 640, a six sounds good. If you're getting a 700 plus, you probably want a seven or an eight. And especially if you're taking the exam to hold it for a while so that you may apply in two, three, four years down the road. We don't know what will be happening with the IR as far as admissions officers go in the future. What we do know is that the cousin exam of the GMAT, the executive assessment, that's for uh, executive MBAs, part-time MBAs generally. This test actually does use the integrated reasoning as part of its overall score. So the GMAC who put forth the GMAT and the executive assessment, they are not pulling back from their belief that the executive or the integrated reasoning section has importance. If anything, they're putting more importance on it on their newer exam, the executive uh, assessment. So we know that there might be more emphasis placed on the integrated reasoning section down the line. So if you're not applying in the next 12 months, you definitely want to uh, emphasize the IR in your uh, in your study a little bit more. And the only way to get better at IR, uh, IR section is 
practice of the integrated reasoning uh, questions that are available online because they're all interactive. You've got to click tabs, you've got to sort figure or sort tables, you've got to evaluate some uh, rather unfamiliar figures and and remember as well that there is a calculator in that section and use it as part of your uh, approach on the on the section because they definitely do not expect you to do the more clumsy and complicated math from that that section in your head but the ir if anything it's trending more important not very important but more important so that's why you want to look at that section now the essay, again, my aforementioned journalism degree somewhere in this room is screaming out in pain, but the fact is that it is by far the least important aspect of your exam, with one exception. If you are a non-native English speaker, it functions as a de facto TUFL writing uh, example. So if you're not familiar with the TUFL, TUFL is the test of English foreign language proficiency, and you have to show that you can write in English under the time constraints. And the theory behind the essay portion of the exam is such. Hans from Munich could pay someone to translate his application essay from its original German into English, and no one would be able to prove that that had happened because the essay is just submitted as part of the packet. There's no real way to vet that. However, Hans from Munich has to take the GMAT essay after providing identification in 30 minutes or less and prove proficiency in English. The score is such on the uh, essay section that a five is basically the 50th percentile. That's all you need to get. You just need to make sure that you get to a five, have a really basic four paragraph essay, not all that exciting, but addressing the prompt of evaluating whatever the argument is that's presented saying that here's some additional information that would help me to evaluate the validity of said argument. As long as you do that, you'll do fine enough on the essay. And part of the reason that the essay score is so low is because people do completely discount it. And again, you don't want to be in a position where you've got a 700 plus on the exam overall, but a two on the essay, because you literally just wrote down, I read the argument. It is good because you felt that it was unimportant. It's actually going to potentially be a red flag that says, we don't know if this person is capable of producing the writing in English that's going to be required by our degree program. Great. Thank you for making this clear as well. And talking about the different sections in the GMAT exam, uh, does the section order actually matters? So the section order is really, really, really a... I didn't even know why they did it, to be perfectly honest. When they, they came up with the, the changing of the section orders, I was like, okay, great. It has no impact from a statistical perspective, which order you choose. It just doesn't. I've had one student in the five plus years since they introduced the adjustable order who had a negative impact. And this was very early on in when it was, uh, when it was uh, offered to students. Because the nice young lady, she decided to change her exam order on test day. Don't do that. Don't change the plan. Stick to the plan. It can throw you off if you do something different. But as long as you don't do that, it will not impact your score one way or the other. So generally what I tell folks is by the end of your second practice exam, and you definitely need at least two practice exams, probably more, to real, uh, really prepare yourself for success on this exam, you just want to set it and say, I'm done with it. And the real only consideration is whether you prefer a warm-up of things that don't really matter 
or you know you run out of focus by the end of the test. Because if you prefer a warm-up, do the essay and the integrated reasoning first, because they do matter less. And the integrated reasoning section in particular is going to be an opportunity for you to begin doing the things that are going to be required by the quantitative and the rural sections. Integrated reasoning uses tactics from both sides of the test. So you just go ahead and do a little bit of integrated reasoning, do a little bit of uh, uh, the verbal and the quantitative as part of it, and it kind of gives you a warm up. If, however, you're the opposite side and you say, you know what, by the end of this uh, three hour plus exam, I'm wiped, I'm not focused anymore, then you'd be much better served to leave the IR and the essay to the end. Because yes, while I just said we don't want to completely ignore the essay and the IR, they are less important. So if you lose focus, leave your lack of focus for the end for the essay. Because you could, just, again, still write a relatively limited three to four paragraph essay that's not that not your greatest work that will satisfy the score requirement of a five. So you can definitely change and try different uh, orders, but it's not going to change it, your score. You just have to make sure that you pick whatever you like more and stick to it. Great. And um, it's a strongly believed fact that uh, The Economist is good preparation for reading comprehension. And while we're still talking about the different sections, could you please give some advice for this uh, myth? So, yeah, the I cannot tell you how many students I've worked with over the years that are like, I'm reading The Economist or I'm reading The New York Times or Financial Times <laughs> or some sort of business publication and telling me that's going to be great for reading comprehension. Well, no. <laughs> so because at the end of your economist, uh, you know, the uh, article that you're reading, you're not going to go, let's now answer some obscure and random questions about what it said in paragraph three. It's just not a, it, it's not a replicable activity. Now, if you're telling me I'm reading The Economist or I'm reading Financial Times just to improve my reading comprehension ability outside of the GMAT, sure. But you could also read fiction. You can also read biographies. You can read anything to improve your just reading comprehension ability if it's not your native language. So instead of spending time doing Economist reading comprehension, you know, there's like a way to study this, do reading comprehension practice for the GMAT. That's going to be the more applicable skill because without the questions tied to it, you're not really uh, performing the task that's required by GMAT reading comprehension. So while I'm, I have nothing against the fine people at The Economist, I know some of the reporters at Reuters and things of that nature, go please patronize their uh, their publications. It makes me happy in my journalism degree, feel great pride when people are paying journalists for their work. It's wonderful work and I really hope they continue to do it. But it's not going to help you with GMAT reading comprehension because you don't have questions at the end and you're also going to be focusing only on one type of reading that happens on the test, which is like the business style of uh, nonfiction. And Frequently, what I find people have most trouble with are some of the more scientific and those technical writings, and that's not going to be in the in the Economist anyway. So, doing reading comprehension passages, doing practice with reading comprehension questions is much better than just picking up a subscription to Financial Times or the Economist because it's the actual activity that you're going to have to do for the exam. 
Great, I understand. And another myth that um, comes to my mind, and a lot of prospective students uh, strongly believe in it, um, is uh, that third-party practice material is actually as good as GMAC practice material. Is it? Is it actually yeah. true? <laughs> yeah. So the, there are definitely different calibers of practice material. And I've heard all sorts of things over the years. And the GMAC practice material is all called from old exams. So these are questions that were in the uh, official GMAT at some point. Now, the third party practice material, oftentimes I've had students tell me that they prefer it because, and you've probably heard this, Manhattan's quantitative practice is harder than the GMAC practice materials. The economist practice materials are harder than the GMAC practice materials. And to some uh, to some degree, that's correct. But they're hard in a way that isn't actually how the GMAC makes the GMAT harder. It's that same idea of like engineer breaking that we talked about uh, just a few moments ago. The way that the GMAT creates more difficulty is by giving you more stuff to do and more variables to track as opposed to just giving you crazy algebra to do. Oftentimes, your Manhattans, your Economists, your Veritases, your harder quantitative content in particular creates just more manual algebraic manipulations, harder math. And the GMAT really just doesn't do that. You should be able to do the mental math for the GMAT relatively easily. And you might see some of the harder questions on practice materials that aren't GMAC practice materials where you're just like, suddenly I need to do 919 times 4833. And you're like, no, that's not how the exam is going to generate difficulty. And now the GMAC has actually produced a advanced questions uh, resource that is nothing but harder, hardest of the hard questions from their perspective that is available online. So that's definitely the best place to get harder quantitative questions. Now, on the verbal side, verbal is honestly where the third party materials struggle more. Um, again, I, I come at this exam with a somewhat unique background. I would say most GMAT tutors are more quantitative focused than verbal focused, and I'm the opposite. And I definitely have had instances where I, in other third party materials, and I don't want to impugn any uh, purveyors out there, I know how hard it is to write these questions, but there are instances where I just have to say, you know what, there's actually an error in their right answer just is. And that's because I've got a, I've got a master's degree in, in editing from one of the top journalism schools in, in the world. So there, it's really easy to miss, though, if you're focusing on the wrong thing. And I know that their writers oftentimes are focused more on the quantitative than the verbal. And the verbal is just not as clean in these third-party materials often as compared to the verbal from the GMAC. So even if you find some of the official guide questions, you're like, they're not that hard. That's great. Go to the advanced questions on the quantitative. Go to the advanced questions in the verbal. Also go to their verbal workbooks, their verbal online and quantitative online only resources. Those tend to be a little bit harder than the official guide as well. Remember that not everybody is trying to get a 700. There are programs that will happily accept students who just clear the median, get a 600 or above. So you've got to remember that these texts are not made for everybody who's aiming for 700 plus. There are other resources that are out there, so you still are probably best served to use the official content. You can excise from their online question bank the easy questions so that you don't see those, but it's always going to be the case that the GMAC 
practice is best, but you can absolutely use third-party things because the third-party things, the one thing that they do that's better than the GMAC, the GMAC explanations aren't that great. And they obviously don't have any uh, videos recorded by the GMAC. Whereas if you've got a Manhattan practice exam, their explanations are going to go into greater detail. So if you need better explanations, definitely consider third-party materials. Definitely consider things like uh, different resources that are out there <clears throat> that will help you understand the basics of like fractions, decimals, you know, subject-verb agreement, those sorts of things. But don't expect them to create better questions. The questions are always going to be best from the GMAC and especially from their online practice exams. Great. Thank you so much. And the eighth um, myth that's in that is on my list today, and I would like to discuss is that plugging in is the best approach for data sufficiency. What do you think about this? And why a lot of people believe in it, actually? So again, third party materials and third party often will recommend uh, plugging in. Plugging in was the first technique that I was taught when I worked in one of those third-party purveyors many, many years ago. It's not going to be most efficient in 95% of the instances. Instead, and this again is a, is, is a dichotomy that I have uh, observed in many, especially higher-end uh, academically uh, performing quantitative uh, individuals who attempt the GMAT. So Oftentimes, we'll have people who have engineering degrees, accounting degrees, math degrees, who in the problem-solving side of the exam immediately go to algebra, and sometimes to their detriment because they spend more time doing things algebraically than it would have taken to logically estimate or work through the problem uh, modeling or, or, or uh, back-solving. But on the data sufficiency side, they start taking just uh, almost analog English notes without much mathematic consideration and start plugging in just haphazardly. And it takes forever and you enter, generally end up leaving the question unfulfilled, feeling like maybe there's some exact number out there that I forgot and maybe I didn't consider negative 74 or positive pi. And it just isn't certain. Whereas if you focus on the algebraic expressions for data sufficiency, that is by far the more effective efficient and effective way to solve it, because it all ties back to just the basics of linear algebra. If I have one variable, I need one equation to solve for that variable. If I have two variables, I need two equations, unique equations, to solve for those two variables. If I have 78 unique variables, theoretically, I need 78 unique equations to solve for each of those individual variables. And if I just articulate the information mathematically using variables, Oftentimes, I can count them, arrange them, and determine that I could solve for the system of equations, or I can substitute in for the, rel uh, the relevant uh, variables, and I don't actually have to fully solve either. So it's just a much more efficient and effective approach if you focus your data sufficiency process on articulating the information as mathematically as possible, as opposed to just saying, okay, well, what if it's negative six? What if it's five? What if it's zero? What if it's one half? Because that's just going to lead you to wasting time and not being as certain in your answer. 
Great. Thank you so much. And um, a lot of uh, people think that they should be strictly for every question about the timing that uh, they are using for every question. So uh, they think that they need to be done uh, in less than two minutes. Uh, so could you please give them some advice or just make it clear? Um, and break Absolutely. this this myth. Absolutely. <laughs> so the thing about two minutes is it's the average. It's the average for 31 questions in 62 minutes on the quantitative side. And it's actually a little bit above, just a little bit above the average, which is just under a minute 50 for the 65 minutes you have for 36 questions on the verbal. Now, an average is exactly that. It means some questions can take longer, some questions can take uh, fewer minutes. But if you're trying to do everything in two minutes, then you're not understanding the exam because the exam, again, difficulty levels vary from question to question, and the amount of content that you have to evaluate varies from question to question. So if you've got a paragraph long data sufficiency or problem solving question versus one that just says X is equal to two Y plus seven, figure out what Y is in terms of X, the latter is probably faster than the former because I got to read a paragraph versus read just one algebraic expression. So you can't expect to do everything in under two minutes. And if you're making a path towards solving the right answer, just keep doing it. Don't have a cutoff of two minutes that's arbitrarily imposed. Because if you do that, you end up cutting a corner and you miss a question that you shouldn't have. And until you are consistently scoring 700 or above, your main goal needs to be eliminating mistakes and getting the easy and medium difficulty questions correct on this exam, not worrying about the hardest ones. So the way that you do that is by not saying, I have to do everything in two minutes. If you are working towards the correct answer, go ahead and do it in three. Now, obviously you can't spend seven minutes on a question, but you reasonably can spend somewhere to three to four minutes per on certain questions, not per question, not per question. You still need the average of two, but you can spend up to three, maybe four on like certain ones, especially reading comprehension, say on the verbal side of the exam, you may spend up to four minutes reading the first uh, question and addressing the entire passage if it's asking for the primary purpose. So you have to be a little bit more flexible understanding that on some questions especially again let's consider reading comprehension if you spent four minutes doing the first question taking a little bit of notes per paragraph understand the main idea and then they ask you about what the sloth did in paragraph two well i know exactly what the sloth did in paragraph two it's in my notes i just go ahead and re refer back to them i come back into the answer choices and i can probably do that question in a minute or fewer uh, 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 a minute or less because I know exactly what I've already done in terms of the work up front with that potentially up to four minute uh, passage read and first upfront notes. So you can be a little bit flexible there. Don't feel like two minutes is your maximum. It's your average, which means that you know three to four minutes is definitely a maximum. Can't do it for everything. And if you get stuck on a problem, you have to make uh, an honest accounting of what has happened and just say, I'm not making any progress. As soon as you get stuck, it's better to decide I'm stuck 30 seconds into a problem as opposed to figuring it out three minutes in. But two minutes is the average, exactly what it says. It's not your maximum. And don't expect yourself to be able to do everything in that maximum because the uh, exam 
does expect that some questions take longer. That, again, is how they generate the difficulty. There's just a longer paragraph for critical reasoning, or there's just a longer reading comprehension passage, or a longer quantitative problem, more steps to complete. So if you encounter one of those questions and you're making progress, finish it out, regardless of whether or not you've hit two minutes or not. Great, thank you. And I would like to finish our session today with um, the last, but maybe not least in importance myth that all questions are created equal. So I'm willing to bet that most, if not all, people who are listening to this podcast and are familiar with my friends over at GMAT Club. And I've been posting, participating at GMAT Club for many, many years at different levels of uh, engagement, just largely based on the amount of time that I have. But a few years back, uh, uh, my buddies over at GMAT Club did a little experiment and they went to the uh, quantitative section, they, they know all the questions and there's some savants over there that just can do the math, right? They're those, those really annoying like 51 uh, quant score guys. So they wanted to see whether or not all questions are created equal. So they had one of their uh, one of their admins take the GMAT, intentionally get the first 20 questions correct, and then miss the last 11 questions on the section. And he got somewhere around a 46, 47 out of 51 was roughly where he where he ended up. I can't remember the exact numbers, but that that's probably where it was. Then he did the inverse. He went and intentionally missed the first 11 questions, got the last 20 right. And he got around a 31 on the section as opposed to a 46 or 47. That's just how important the earlier portion of the exam is compared to the latter. And the GMAC knows this. If uh, you happen to have a copy of the uh, official guide, and I think you can go back just about any any version, at least since they changed to the new um, the flexible ordering option uh, uh, capability. There's this, in the very introduction, there's this thing that says myth versus fact. And the book, the myth is that the difficulty of one question dictates the uh, proficiency level and difficulty of the next. And the fact that they present does not disprove this myth. It just says you should not be concerned with the difficulty level of the questions. They completely aligned the actual issue and just say, yeah, don't, don't, don't worry about that. Well, we actually have to worry about that if we're taking the GMAT. So that's why you want to be a little bit more deliberate and spend a little bit more time per question earlier rather than later. So the early questions do matter more. They just do. And for that reason, you give yourself a little bit more time per question to finish things out, to check different approaches, to double check cross T's dot I's earlier on. But you still have to finish the section. And so at the end, they are less important questions in terms of your score because the exam kind of defines your proficiency level and your score level earlier on, probably by around question 20. It has a good idea of what your proficiency level is based on what you've done to that point. But you have to finish as well. So you don't want to be in a position where you run out of time at question 32 on the verbal. Instead, look up and go, hey, I've got a minute left. Let me click through and I'll finish out and do my best on the last question. Because if you have a string of incorrect, that's one thing. If you have a string of not completed, that's a completely different thing. So 
not all questions are created equal. Earlier on, you've got to be a little bit more careful and you've got to make sure that you finish to the end. Not saying the ones in the middle aren't important, but there are opportunities to potentially guess and skip in the middle if you need to make up pace and recognize that even if you're getting a 50 or a 51 on the quantitative section in particular, you're not getting everything right necessarily. There may be questions that they introduce in the middle that are just so time-consumingly onerous that you're in a better position to just be like, you know what, I'm not going to engage with this fully because I can see that it's going to be a giant waste of my time. Similarly, similarly on the verbal, if you're looking at a, at a critical reasoning in you know question 24, and you're like, this is one of those bold statement ones. It's a paragraph that looks like it could be broken into three paragraphs if they wanted to. I might just get out of that in under a minute by saying, okay, what? Let me figure out if one of these bold statements is the conclusion and just move on. So there are opportunities to make discretion the better part of valor and say, I don't need to do this question. But earlier on, they matter more. So be more careful then. Great. Stefan, thank you so much for making all of uh, these myths clear and giving really interesting and valuable information today. I believe that we throw away all of those myths and make the situation clear and easier to our listeners. Thank you one more time. Well, it's my I, pleasure. I, I always like being able to dispel bad ideas that I know are out there on the internet. I know I'm on the internet too, but hopefully uh, by working through these, these myths and knowing that they aren't really true will help improve your score as you prepare for the GMAT. Yeah, great. I want to uh, remind everyone that they can visit your website, MyGuru. I will leave a link um, in the description of the podcast so you can visit their website. As well, you can visit unimy.com and unimyprep.com where you can find your perfect match and you can find there all of the materials that will be uh, helpful for you in your preparation. On behalf of our team, uh, I want to wish a nice day to everyone and to remind you to stay tuned for more because uh, we will have a series of podcasts with Stefan and we will talk about the Jerry meets, the IELTS meets and TOEFL meets. So everyone stay tuned for more and have a nice day.